0: This is a warning, another cut to move on, another beat that's so strong, hold on and I get wicked and this some stir up shit is the wit- gets wisdom. Hey everybody, welcome to the RT Podcast with George Coston, and Rich Pelton. Here we're going to discuss BMX, business, and the sport that brought Rich and I together, F1 racing. Get ready. Hello everybody. This week we are recording the episode without my co-host Rich Pelton from Tangent. Rich has been pretty busy lately, so it's been a little hard to get a hold of him. So I figured I want to release regular content. And if we have to do a few solo, then so be it. Uh, I don't have a problem talking. So hopefully everybody enjoys this. Uh, Let us know feedback in the comments about whether you guys think this is a good approach or not. So again, we're going to this is the rt podcast and we're talking about bmx business and f1 racing so i'm going to try to stick to that even in these solo sessions and uh one thing i want to point out from the last episode was uh rich and i got talking about some different manufacturers here in the united states who are producing their own products and we really came a blank uh when it came to some other brands and uh, after the fact, I didn't want to disrespect this brand at all, but um, I do want to acknowledge that I do we do recognize them as a legitimate uh, shop that is producing its own product line. And that would be LDC out of, I believe, Arizona. Now, I don't know them personally, but uh, I do see that they are running their own machine shop and you know have their own product brand and a factory team and doing all the right things in my opinion to you know try to walk this path of having a bmx business so uh kudos to you guys and uh you know just wanted to make sure you guys weren't forgotten so uh, the past couple of weeks on facebook there's been a couple of discussions about um lack of pro racing i guess at uh a non-pro event and um you know, a few years ago now usa bmx has uh, changed the format in that uh used to be back in the day that every stop on the ABA series, now uh, called USA BMX series, was a pro race, and it was something that a lot of people look forward to. And you know, it didn't matter where you went in the country. Um, I know a couple of times I've been out to the ABA National that happened here in Massachusetts, and you could go there and see A pros racing. And you know, it was a way for people who don't travel outside of the on the normal national circuit to be able to see, you know, the the fastest individuals in our sport competing and it's really cool for you know a kid that doesn't get out doesn't have the luxury of going cross country to some of the bigger venues to be able to see them pretty much at their local track is you know kind of an amazing thing then with the advent of the olympics and world cups and you know peaking and all this other stuff that's going on the pro series got reduced down to just a few select weekends per year and um i still think it's it's quite a bit of weekends but nonetheless uh it's not the entire schedule throughout the year and that does take away from people being able to see them compete and personally i think it's a mistake i think that uh i think that they should go back to the old model but i don't run the show so you know that's just my opinion but the topic of you know pros back in the day being able to make a living versus nowadays where they're you know a lot of people perceive their winnings as something that's you know not really worth the risk or the reward and and i could totally understand and see how um nowadays people look want to go back and think of the past and 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 think of how great it was and everything and but I just want to, from, from my perspective, looking at things, I think that there's an explanation to what's going on. Racing nowadays on the national level does seem to be as big or as strong as it ever was. There are <laughs> I had a few, uh, I had quite a bit of back and forth with someone online who was insistent that, you know, in the early 80s, it was bigger than now. But from all... All intents and purposes, back then, there was not an order of magnitude more people racing. And when I say order of magnitude, I want people to understand what that means. You know, so if we have, you know, anywhere, let's say 30,000 to 50,000 people racing, hell, go ahead and say, you know, 20,000 people racing. I, I don't care what the number is that you use. When I say something like order of magnitude, I mean, you know, you're talking 200,000 to 500,000 people, or you know, or greater. Fact of the matter is, there's never been that many people racing ever. Uh, that sort of order of magnitude has never existed in the United States or worldwide, and that's just a simple fact. So, why is it then back in the day, as uh, Dr. J. Rich loves to say, why is it back in the day? That you had a lot of individuals who were able to make a living at the sport and you know, live pretty good life. and they they probably would tell you now that it, they were lucky to be kind of born and in and, and kind of come up in that era. But I have some thoughts on, you know, why something like that possibly existed versus nowadays. So race population aside, whether the the 80s was bigger or modern day is bigger, I think everyone can agree that there wasn't an order of magnitude change in the amount of people physically racing in the sport so it has to be something else these these companies that existed back then who were paying very good salaries and wages to these racers to exist the money had to be coming from somewhere they had to be they had to justify that expenditure or they that those expenditures led to the demise of that sort of avenue for advertisement which is also a realistic possibility here back in the day there wasn't in my opinion as many available brands for customers to get access to and purchase and when i say that some people try to have fought back a little bit saying no 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 there's there's definitely was just as many as today and even though i was very very young at the time but my exposure and introduction into BMX came a little bit differently because I didn't know a single kid in my neighborhood who raced. I didn't even know that there was a track in the city that I grew up in. And, you know, that's, it's kind of hilarious, but there was I I was born and raised in a city in Massachusetts here called Fall River, Massachusetts. They had a BMX track in the early to like mid eighties. And I never knew something like that actually existed which is kind of crazy. So my exposure came from buying BMX Plus at the local newspaper store, magazine store which is kind of, you know, something again you don't see nowadays. But I was purchasing BMX Plus and reading it and, you know, wanting to, you know, get the, you know, bikes that were advertised inside of there and, you know, go back and look at magazines from that era. You didn't have a lot of people advertising inside of there. There wasn't 120 brands inside the magazine advertising. There was a select low number. And uh, more importantly, that the distribution model back then, uh, there was no direct sales to consumers. Uh, If I wanted to get something, you were either buying it through the mail order of the magazine, meaning a true mail order. I'm talking about filling out a piece of paper, tearing it out of the magazine, mailing it in with a stamp and a money order, uh, and waiting for your parts to arrive. Or what I think a lot of people were doing is that they were going to their local bike shop, which is certainly what I ended up doing. you know, my first bike was my first, you know, real BMX style bike that I purchased brand new was a 1988 GT Pro Performer freestyle bike. And, you know... I had no idea uh, that there were all of these other brands that existed. I was kind of subject to what was at my local bike shop. So a lot of these brands who had big name riders who were paying large salaries and everything to these guys back in the day, they had the benefit of you didn't have to have, you know, 500,000 people racing at the time. You had to have 500,000 people possibly buying bicycles at the time but not actively racing. And there were multiple kids in my neighborhood who had GTs, Diamondbacks, Haro's, uh, you know, Skyways, you know, like name the brand back in the day. Like there was somebody that had it in the local neighborhood, but, you know, try to name how many kids actually raced at a real BMX track and were official racers those numbers were far less. So the the fact of the matter that you had these companies whose main distribution was selling to thousands of bike shops throughout the United States coupled with the fact that people who were buying these bikes majority uh, for the majority I believe were not actually racing the bikes. They were, you know, emulating racers and wanted to do it, but they weren't necessarily out there doing that and That's a big detriment to what is going on nowadays, because nowadays uh, the only people who are buying race bikes and products from race brands are racers. I don't believe that, you know, there are neighborhood kids looking to get the latest S squared, you know, and, and wanting to go out and pop wheelies in their neighborhoods regarding that. Now, you know, granted, Guys like Todd Lyons and the whole SE wheelie bike movement, that's a different subject. That's a different thing. But and that's something they created, or that that type of lifestyle brand or you know, kind of genre of riding is something that's is how BMX is evolving moving forward, which I think is great for brands like that. But if you're a hardcore race brand trying to make race parts and and sell race things, Uh, your exposure and is very limited, which circle back to modern day pros. This is why I think it's very, very difficult nowadays for someone who aspires to uh, race at that level, to actually be able to support themselves to do it. There's very, very few brands supporting that mainly because, you know, I believe the return on investment for something like that is extremely low, if not you know, no return on investment. It's not an easy proposition to say that you're going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars a year on one particular person to go out and represent your brand and and advertise for it. And the whole purpose behind that is to try to increase sales. Not so sure that there is the kind of reach that's needed to compensate for the amount that that costs. So, unfortunately, it is the current state of things. I will say. Another thing that back in the day doesn't have didn't compete against versus modern day is that there is a plethora of brands and uh, frames and that are really in existence because of the teams that have been created. So that is something that I don't believe back in the day really existed much, if at all. And I'm not going to run out there and name names, but um, just look around when you're at the track. And if you see a particular brand that tends to only be used by the team that's associated with it, well, that's one of these brands that is contributing to that. And I can totally understand, you know, individuals going out and pursuing that they are basically taking their team efforts into their own hands. And they're going out and Uh, If they are not getting the kind of sponsorship or support that they feel like they deserve or, you know, deserve is a is a difficult is a difficult proposition also because it's just, you know, someone looking to go out there and their desire to have a team or run a team or for the team's existence is greater than the desire to run the brand. And if the brand through the team helps offset expenses to the point where there's like a a net zero gain, then that's totally fine. It didn't cost anybody anything. And it's in existence. And, you know, a a team can be supported in that regard. And there's a lot of examples of that. And people should not, you know, when when people want to sit there and and say, you know, these, you know, X pro should be making this or back, you know, you know, they were doing this back in the day and this sort of thing just think about that that aspect of it because for someone to get paid a certain amount of money to represent the brand it means that that brand is hoping for a return on that investment by selling you know a certain number of units to not only compensate for that but but exceed that the the goal should not be net zero the goal should be a profit on it otherwise you go out of business you know, you don't want you don't want to run things in the negative; it never works. So, but when nowadays the proliferation of these uh, product based teams, there's a lot of that in the sport right now. And not to say that you know that should go away. That this you know this is America, and people can do absolutely whatever they want to. That's the great thing about the place that we live. But it is something that explains the current state that we're in. So, you know, just a couple of, couple of random thoughts that ran through on these conversations that were happening over the last week online. Just wanted to put my perspective out there on what I think is going on. So moving on to the business section of this podcast, um, you know, things that are keeping me up at night right now, <laughs> Uh, is trying to basically not be forced to increase my prices. And why do I say that? You know, our products are on the higher end and of the spectrum of, you know, what's available out there. Our products are made in the United States, so, uh, go USA, but, um, Trying to make something here in the United States is very difficult. But uh, as I've mentioned before, like I don't have the personality or the desire or will to want to deal with overseas manufacturing. So I do the best I can with what we have. And part of that is through investing heavily in our manufacturing capabilities here at Renan and also uh, just trying to watch my costs of everything that's going on. And over the last few months, what I've been noticing is every time I go place a new order for material, I will say like probably 98%, maybe even 99% of the materials we purchase here is aluminum, uh, 7075, T6 exclusively. Every single time I've gone to place orders for material. My vendors keep on coming back and saying that the price price increases are happening, and I keep on paying more and more for material and and for years, the uh, pricing did not fluctuate as much as it has been, especially over the last three years. And uh, it's a shame because I'm kind of forced to some extent to increase prices. Um, last, I believe it was like two years ago was my first price increase I ever had. Uh, on the brand where we took um for like for instance a 4 bolt chain ring we were selling at $40 retail and we had to move that price up to 45 and at the start of this year because of price increases that happened in the fall we increased those prices by $5 once again from uh 45 to $50 and you know i'm faced with the proposition again, you know, do we have to look at doing this again? And I really don't want to. So trying to do whatever I can to possibly uh, fix this issue through controlling our costs or looking at large bulk purchases of material, uh, it is a real problem right now. And I'm not sure what is really gauging this, whether this is the current inflation, whether it's, you know, the Uh, strain that the Russian war on Ukraine is is imposing on the world Um, or whether it's just pure greed from some of these companies because I do believe that um, when their prices go up significantly higher than what the reported inflation is, or, you know, product that's already been sitting on the shelf and in, in places, and they increase pricing overnight. A lot of times I feel like this is uh, what's what's there's a phrase out there. Um, it's always usually associated with Democrats, I feel but uh they say, Oh, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I feel like that sort of thing is happening. in the manufacturing world where uh material prices are just going it, they're ridiculous right now going through the roof we have quarter inch uh 775 that we purchase for our four bolt threaded gears exclusively and the pricing on that from october to now i just got a quote in and the pricing is up like 50 percent on the material with really no rhyme or reason And some of these places have, they've had the material on the shelf since October. Back in October, I was faced with a similar thing where they, uh, one one of my vendors had literally told me price was doubling from one order to the next. And, you know, I, I couldn't accept that. And I then went and spent all of my available time calling every... Vendor, I possibly could to try to figure something out. I ended up finding a vendor who did have material and asked them like how much that they wanted for it, and they gave me a price. And I asked them how many, you know, how much material that they actually had. And I had made the decision at the time in October that this was a growing problem that material keeps on going up and up and up and up and up. And um, in order to try to curb my costs or control them. I had just decided at the time, I'm like, well, I have to buy like four to 5,000 pounds of this stuff, which was close to uh, my yearly or what I thought was my yearly consumption of the material based on uh, previous history. Uh, So I went and did that and I placed a huge order for material. It was the largest that we had ever gotten. It came, I believe, in like November and we unloaded it all had it stored over here and in, in the shop luckily you know one of the best things i did the last couple of years was construct my own uh shop so i could store you know for situations like this like be able to have enough room to buy material in a large bulk and and you know store it and everything and and here i was thinking i ordered enough for about a year's worth of uh product but i think one thing i underestimated was uh, how much back order we had at the time and, and just our demands. Uh, the last two years due to COVID, our demand for product has gone through the roof. And we actually were almost fully caught up with our back order, I will, I'm very happy to say. I know our vendors will be happy to hear that. Um, but we blew through almost all of this material just in a few months that I was expecting it to be a year's supply worth. And this is specifically for the four bolt threaded gears. So, you know, right now we're getting kind of low on that initial stock that I had bought in October. And I'm back to doing the same hunting and trying to find the best deal I can and trying to negotiate with vendors. But I feel, you know, owning a BMX business, people who want to know if it's all glorious and stuff, uh, if being on the phone all day, calling multiple metal vendors all over the United States, getting quotes. If that sounds like your cup of tea, then, you know, by all means, like fire it up, start, start figuring things out. But, um, it's, <laughs> I hate doing it. I absolutely hate it. It, uh, drives me absolutely nuts, but nonetheless, um, I don't think I'd be able to, you know, on one day have a gear that we sell currently $55 and, and you know come out the next day and say oops sorry guys you know my material just went up so significantly that you know the stuff has got to go to 75 dollars or 80 dollars or 90 dollars." you know I, I don't think that that is a viable option so currently doing everything thing I can to try to control that but uh, other manufacturers if you're listening to this and hopefully you're paying attention to what's happening and um, and it's it's unprecedented you know I've been doing this since 2006 and I've never seen material go up as high as it has been and uh, it's a little concerning it's the only thing that is out of my hands in this business is you know our supply of material if if our material supply dries up then you know the business dries up and that's no good so you know my days last couple of weeks have been spent aggressively hunting for deals and trying to find as much aluminum as i can and and sometimes buying very very large quantities of it uh recently got very very lucky and found a shop uh that was actually in New Jersey, who uh, had a lot of material that they did not want, and they sold it extremely cheap. This is all material that we're going to be using for our hive cranks. And uh, we purchased uh, about 3,700 pounds of material recently. So that should be enough material for quite some time. Uh, Then again, uh, if you have listened this long. You'll know that I've already mentioned my forecasting abilities uh, are horrible. So, uh, who knows? <laughs> we'll see how long this latest batch of stuff lasts. But um, luckily, in regards to that sort of product, um, we're probably going to be able to control our pricing and keep things in line for you know quite some time. Uh, we also are looking at really sitting down and optimizing our manufacturing processes on. Uh, all aspects of the business here. We have a lot of dedicated special machinery for doing just one particular thing. Uh, for instance, there's uh, two to three, C- there's actually four CNC mills here that are dedicated to uh, production of BMX gears. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have one machine, you know, about 50% of its time dedicated just to engraving the gears, which is kind of wild to say. When I started this business, uh, back in 2005-2006 time frame as far as you know selling and manufacturing gears we had one machine and we did everything on that one machine um, which is kind of wild to think about uh, recently sold that machine to a former employee just sitting back and reflecting on all the years it is it is kind of it is kind of wild to see how this stuff has gone but uh, nonetheless it's what keeps me going every day it's tons of fun i really enjoy it Uh, i i do enjoy like optimizing and and making the product as robust and efficient as possible as we can but not too much product development at this moment really just trying to keep up with demand here in the shop we are finally getting to a point of being able to uh, catch up to our back order supply and uh Hopefully that means real soon we'll start, you know, really populating our stock shelves and uh, making sure that, you know, we have a lot of, we we tend to keep a lot of product raw on the shelf. And when customers place an order, we, because any gear that we have uh, or any crank that we have can be one of four colors. So we usually pull. A product at that point in time to submit to weekly anodized runs so we tend to tell customers that it's you know a 10 to 14 day turnaround time it really depends on when they actually place their orders because we tend to go to anodize on like monday afternoons or tuesday mornings and if the order gets placed sometime before then let's say it gets placed on like a weekend we'll try to get it all uh, pulled and cut on monday and make sure that it makes that anodized batch uh, sometimes when it doesn't Uh, And it's a little after, like, let's say somebody places an order Tuesday morning and we missed, then that's when that particular order uh, may uh, go out closer to something like two weeks because it doesn't make the next batch at Anodize until the the next week. So just a a little bit of background and explaining, you know, how things kind of function and work here. And then we have, you know, all of our. Great vendors all over the United States. Uh, they all have orders with us currently, and we try to service them, you know, as fairly as possible in the order that we receive them. But it has been a struggle. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, some of these orders were massive, and we're finally starting to, you know, we're we're down to probably just a you know maybe two to three hundred left to fulfill for. Uh, our vendors all over the country and worldwide. Um, So that is the, you know, the BMX portion of of what we got going on here. And uh, in the spirit of the podcast, this next part with the F1 segment, uh, is going to be a little difficult without having someone like Rich to, you know, talk about the, you know, past races or anything that we've watched or what we're excited about. But I thought that maybe I could, uh, you know, we've had, there's been two races that have occurred and there's been Bahrain and there's been Saudi Arabia in F1. And for the last eight years, Mercedes has fully dominated the, the, the series. And this year they are not, they are doing pretty horribly in as far as their expected performance, I would say. And two teams, uh, well, one team has emerged that is kind of back to their history, like the standing that they, that they look to be at, and that's Ferrari. And the other team that I think everyone expected them to be at this level uh, performing well was Red Bull. And uh, what are the reasons behind this possibly? So for those who don't know, F1 has a huge list of rules and regulations that the teams have to adhere to. And in this coming year, they had decided to fully revamp the rules and regulations on teams to allow for more competitive racing, to allow for closer racing. They want it to be exciting and just to shake things up, because when you get a team that got so dialed in like Mercedes did, if they continue to dominate for all the years coming, then people will eventually lose interest in the sport and not follow it anymore. So I think it is a good thing that they do shake things up. It also gets the design teams uh, all rattled and, you know, they have to start from scratch and do some stuff. But uh, the biggest changes, which is what something I wanted to talk about and explain, was F1 had banned, I believe in the 80s, a concept, an aerodynamic principle called ground effect and what this did was essentially uh if you don't know f1 racing is heavily heavily influenced by the aerodynamics of the car these cars generate so much downforce that if they were able to race a track that the vehicle could essentially rotate and kind of drive upside down on some kind of magical upside down race course they would stick To the ceiling uh they generate so they they generate downforce well above the weight of the vehicle so which means that these cars are literally flying but they're flying to push themselves down onto the racetrack and they do that through the front wing and the rear wings and it's kind of obvious in that regard but one that's not so obvious is how they utilize the body and in the 80s uh, a some clever aerodynamicists had figured out that you could get this effect called ground effect, which is when the design and shape of the body of the vehicle is such that it allows the car to basically come very, very, very close to the surface of the the F1 racetrack. And that in turn, changes the airflow underneath the vehicle and it increases the pressure on the top side of the vehicle while producing this lower pressure below the vehicle and when that occurs they get tremendous amounts of downforce and it's kind of nice because it's kind of centralized on the body where they can make things very rigid and strong and 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 do all this sort of thing But it ended up being so good in the 80s that some teams just took off with the title and they immediately kind of put the halt to that. And this year in 2022, they've opened up that regulation to where ground effect is something that can actually occur and the designers can utilize it. I believe this is where Mercedes has taken a horrible turn in that they can't figure out their ground effect correctly. All of the teams were exhibiting something that they, that they called porpoising, which if you think of like a dolphin, like kind of, you know, swimming in the ocean and like coming out of the water, coming down and, and coming back up again, it's this Bob, uh, you know, this jumping out and jumping down, jumping out, jumping down. So what's porpoising on an F1 car at the end of the day? It's uh What's happening is they're generating that uh, downforce that they're looking for through the mechanism of ground effect. But then it's getting to a critical point where what happens is something called aerodynamic stall. So it's like an airplane in that if an airplane wing begins uh, creating too much angle to try to generate lift there, there is a critical range where it just kind of disappears. And then it essentially like falls out of the sky briefly until it can regain, uh, the the correct proportion of lift and drag. And that's, what's happening on these vehicles is that they're getting sucked down from the aerodynamic effect. They're hitting a stall region where it just diminishes because the vehicle has suspension and everything else, it's springing the vehicle back up again. And then it gets back into that range where it's producing downforce again, and it pulls it back down. And it's this vicious cycle, this vicious uh, oscillation that's happening. And it's making it undrivable for, for some of the drivers. Like if you go back and watch any of the footage, watch some of the footage of Lewis Hamilton on some of the straightaways, where ground effect is most uh, predominant. and you could see from his helmet view, the car is just violently shaking up and down and, it's, and and he's bouncing like crazy. And I can't imagine that trying to go 200 miles an hour, you know, be so precise with that uh, F1 car that it's it's just making it extremely difficult for someone like that who is very talented to be able to control the vehicle. So, um, yeah, it's wild. Uh, it, it's a really, really, really interesting uh, thing that's happening this year, and it's it's kind of a race right now to see who can control their porpoising effects and improving their aerodynamics. Luckily, uh, the regulations do allow these guys to bring upgrades to different races, but they're also hitting a wall, which I think is another interesting concept of F1, where they have a cost cap in that. You know it's extremely expensive to develop these vehicles, and if you had an unlimited budget, you could basically keep on bringing unlimited upgrades to the every race, and you know try to shortcut development time. And there's a big range of teams who are extremely well funded to you know bare minimum funding, and in order to try to you know level the playing field for everyone, uh, the FIA who is the governing body for F1, they introduced this uh, cost cap, which I believe is about $140 million or $145 million a year. I don't know exactly what that entails because I do believe uh, driver salaries are excluded from that and maybe some of the salaries of the teams. But I know the costs of the car have to be within that range. And um, the race last weekend that happened in saudi arabia the haas team uh their uh, young driver mick schumacher he ended up crashing that vehicle and they are reporting that they, they couldn't even they didn't even bother to race on sunday by rebuilding the car and just giving them a car to race on sunday it happened in qualifying on sunday um but they didn't they literally didn't do it i believe to not spend too much money on because of this cost cap issue and that one crash cost them between 500000 and a million dollars. And it was literally, I mean, the crash was just, you know, mick got a little sideways on one of the turns and it's a street course in F1 and spun the car around, went right into a wall and and the car disintegrated. But he came out, he walked out of that crash, which is a testament to the design and engineering of the safety of those vehicles, which is, you know, Uh, Another aspect that is just absolutely amazing and which is some of the reasons why I love the sport so much is uh, this technical side of it and, you know, the, the, the level of detail and it's the pinnacle of engineering Um, and, and, you know, I I would say on the other side of that would be somebody like Elon Musk and the things that are happening at SpaceX and Tesla. Uh, I feel like some of the things that they're doing are on the, the pinnacle of engineering, but as far as sports-related engineering, F1's got it, got everyone topped. Um, I don't think that there's a single sport out there that can come close. So hopefully you guys, you know, like how this episode went. Again, I'd love to do more back and forth, but uh, it is difficult sometimes to coordinate with other people who are also trying to run a business and, and have a family and, you know, everything else going on in the world. So um You know we might do more of these solo ones mixed in with uh some some ones with just me and rich and uh we'll see how things go but you know hopefully you guys liked it and i am excited for the feedback that we did get from some people and uh hopefully you keep on listening